G'day, I'm Sean, and welcome to the Car Expert Podcast. Before we dive in today, do you want to win some free fuel yes, for please. your Christmas road trip? Oh, no, Scott, you, you want to? No, no, yes, I do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, sorry. you can't. I'm too keen. Sorry, you sorry, can't, sorry. But if you're watching or listening at home, stick around because I'm going to tell you how you can win fuel for your Christmas road trip. Uh, but, you know, we'll dive right in. Uh, we've got Scott here. He, you already know that because he wants to win the fuel. I'm keen to win some free fuel, please. He can't. He Damn. can't. Um, and James, you're here. You're a bit... More facetious about winning fuel? You're just going to do it quietly? You're just going to hold my cards close to my chest. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we're going to dive straight into you and uh, your topic first up today. Mate, you, last week you went and drove the Ineos Grenadier. I did, I which did. Which is um, France's answer to the <laughs> Defender. It's a modern take on the Defender, I guess you could sort of say. It's a lot of things. It's sort of you like... You just a defended some Brits. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of British people very upset with it that. It was originally meant to be the rebirth of the original one, but then Land Rover didn't sell the tooling and the blueprints, so then he just went and made his own. Ah. It's like there's a whole story behind it. But yes, it looks like an original Defender and has been conceptualized as a as a successor to that. And um, but with some more like an evolution in the sense that it's got a bit more modern tech in it as well, but sort of keeping that overall aesthetic and and focus on being rugged and an adventurous go anywhere vehicle. Well, it looks it looks fantastic, I think. And if you're a fan of the old Defender, I think that you will really like this because let's be honest. The new Defender, like whilst it's stylish and nice, it's not what you would call it's a, a traditional very Defender. Different Defender. Yeah, it's it, very. It's not modern. a simple bare bones car. They've it's a very the, capable, luxurious offer. Yeah, down the discovery route with yeah. it. Whereas this is a, quite luxurious, from my understanding, but it's much more like. I don't want to say bare bones because I really think that's the it's wrong term. Old but yeah. It's old school. It's like a, yeah, it's sort of like when you go into the cockpit and it's got like this very aeroplane inspired thing with like toggle switches and there's the roof console and there's this massive silver stack with these like chunky rubberized um, buttons and switches and things like that. It's, it's very different to a lot of the stuff that you'd look at today, even from Land Rover. Like you get into a new Discovery and it does not look like anything like my granddad's 93 Discovery <laughs> that was sort of the similar um, styling inside. But yeah, it's, it's, very, it's a very interesting thing to bring out now. It's sort of somewhere between something like a Land Cruiser 70 series, which is still very much a, a throwback in time with some modern tech and then much newer stuff like the Defender that you mentioned earlier. It's also a throwback for Land Rover because it's powered by BMW engines, which is kind of a nod to the early 2000s when BMW owned Land Rover and put X5 stuff in the Disco and the Range Rover. And that's pretty much It's pretty much an X5 engine, a diesel and a petrol available in this, which, I mean, you can't really go wrong with that, can you? No, and they both, they both perform very well in, in different ways. So the bulk of our testing was at the Lerdeberg National Park in um, Victoria's Such Northwest. Say that ten times faster. Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed that I managed to get through that without messing it up. But you know, it was a quite a quite a gnarly track that we went. It's the Ratcliffe track, which is quite a challenging one. There's a lot of jagged rock faces, high climbs, and river crossings, and all that kind of thing. And it really just ate it up. But um, you know, the diesel's really well suited for that because it's got so much torque right down. And they've, it, um, Ineos has retuned both of those BMW engines to be better um, for torque delivery down low, but also good acceleration up high in the rev range. So it's obviously been specialised for that vehicle. It's not like they've just taken it out of an X5 and, and plonked it in there. Um, and, you know, they've got lots of really great um, components from tier one suppliers, like ZF does the transmission. Um, you know, BMW supplies the engine. They've got heaps of other stuff going on. So even though it's a bit of a mishmash of things, it all comes together really well. And in the testing that we did um, on the launch, it was, it was really impressive. So I've been lucky enough or unlucky enough, I'm not sure which, drive a fair few old Defenders. Mm -hmm. 
and they were very capable off-road, but I wouldn't call them easy off-roaders to drive. You really had to think about what you were doing, and when you wanted to get in low range, you had to pull a big lever. Very analogue. Very yeah. analogue yeah. and very mechanical and deliberate. Does the Grenadier feel approachable and easy to drive off-road, or is it still a little bit hard to access like the old Defender? Uh, well, it has that funny like gear ball style lever for the um, the diffs and the off-road modes, like you, the, what you were mentioning. There was one time I think I was trying to take it out of low range and into high range, and I couldn't quite get it right. Um, one of the Ineos guys had to like jump through from the back seat and be like, hang on, you just need to like really yank it. <laughs> so, okay, so it's still got some defender. Yeah, it's, and and I don't want to know what you got up to with the Ineos guys uh, well, when you were deep in the Lerdenberg forest. Okay, well, I'm being bullied on, on the thing now. Um, <laughs> Bully him back, it's fine. Yeah, well, but like in terms of all the other stuff, other than having to engage the um, low range, everything else is like super simple. It's got like the BMW gear selector wand, which most people who have ever owned a recent BMW will find really easy to live with. Um, the way it drives is very easy, even when you're on the road. It's just very much like a, a go. Like the the power steering is is fairly. It's still heavy, but it's not. It's still livable. It's not like this all the time. No, like an old no, defender. definitely <laughs> not. Break your thumbs if you put them over the inside <laughs> yeah. of the wheel. And and while we don't have these things in Australia yet, they are working on getting um, some of those more sophisticated driver assistance systems, like autonomous emergency braking and lane keep assist, um, rolling out in Ineos Grenadier is overseas which should eventually come here but yeah and it's got like a really nice big touch screen that looks like it may have once been an iDrive unit but it's mm -hmm. got its own software and it's got some cool off-road um, menus and skins and things like that so you can see um, articulation tire temperatures all that kind of thing which is really cool so I'm a little bit confused about the price on this car because the Defender, although it was never cheap, the old one was a relatively affordable, rugged off-roader. And this kind of started in the $80,000 range in Australia, but you're paying more than a hundred grand now for a base model. What's happened there? Uh, it's a, Ineos's um, comment around that was more to do with just costs to do with shipping and all that kind of stuff. It's a very common thing that we hear from manufacturers now when they adjust prices. Um, and they also said that this is the positioning that they think the car is works at. Um, it is quite a bit more expensive than even a 70 series, which we would normally say is not great value as it is. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of competing in the price point that you would see, you know, entry level versions of some of those Land Rover products and some other um, more I guess premium offerings that sort of offer off-road ability, but not quite the ruggedness that this one does. Um, and the customer base, I actually asked the Ineos team around, you know, what kind of customers are you getting in? It's not just old Defender customers. There's a lot of people who may have had uh, Discovery 4s, where it was a, um, a model that was called out in that, you know, the new models don't necessarily serve them well enough. So they like that sort of look and, you know, original Defenders and Mercedes G-Wagon professionals. Well, that's the thing, because I remember a few years ago that they had a G, like a base G ute. That they brought yeah, G professional. It was $130,000. Yeah. So, and it must be more now, surely. It so, doesn't exist anymore. Well, it doesn't exist. There yeah. you go. So, I mean, unless you, you know, go to an uh, ex army auction or something like that, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this is actually, it's a lot cheaper than a Land Cruiser uh, 300. It's mm. about the same price as a Patrol, mm. a bit cheaper than a Warrior, I think. 
and yet cheaper than a base defender as well. Yeah, so it's actually, if you're in that market, it's actually a pretty good proposition. Yeah, and it's super customizable. Like they've got like the, the tracks all over the car so you can add in accessories. They've got their own in-house stuff, but there's also a lot of room for aftermarket things as well. You can customize the load area to have like hooks and grab handles and all those sort of like netting things that you would get. Um, and there, there's so much that they, they're working on as well for the future um, for customers to tap into. So there's so much going on there. And then next year, they're also bringing out a dual cab ute version called the Quartermaster. Yes, now you've got to say that like Sean Connery. It's the Ingosh Quartermaster. Quartermaster. <laughs> the Quartermaster. I will not attempt that. <laughs> but they, yeah, so Ingosh has confirmed that they're bringing the Quartermaster around some point next year. I think they're probably looking around the mid the mid area, um, so it's like June, July, um, and they'll also have a cab chassis version of that arriving afterwards, which hasn't even been revealed yet. So, given Australia is such an important Ute market, they, they see a really great opportunity there. And you know, this is really different. Given it's in that same you know six-figure price point, it's a very different thing to something like a Ram 1500 or a Ford F150 that are still like SUV-like in a lot of ways. Whereas this again is that really rugged, like purpose-built, um, you know, proper off-road ability, but like with the stuff like the engine performance and things like that, it would be a really interesting proposition. Well, we can't wait to get it and actually test out our proving ground. So uh, make sure you subscribe because when we do actually get one, which I think we're talking next year by the time they actually hand them out to us, um, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to have one and have, give it a good run at our proving ground. Uh, moving on, uh, we're going to go electric now. Um, kind of old school as well, though, the Mustang Mach-E, which is, a lot of people say it's not a Mustang. Uh, that's, that's, In a traditional sense, that's, it's not. That's to be seen. Um, but Ford have already knocked seven grand off the price of the thing. Uh, and it's only just gone on sale in Australia. So. Yeah, custom deliverers, I don't think, have even started that car yeah. yet. So it's pretty incredible to see such a big price cut. But yes. Now it's down to about, about $73,000 for the entry level, which is still seven grand more than a Model Y. Yeah. So it is still a big jump up over what I guess people would call a traditional EV. Mm. But I mean, have you guys both have driven the Mach-E? Um, I've spent the last weekend in the top of the range GT. Um, Which is not 73 grand, mind it's you. It's 100 and something <laughs> yes. grand, yeah. Um, I don't know if you had a go yet. No, I haven't, but I am driving one this week, so I'm keen to... Okay, well, James will report go. back, but Scott, <laughs> how do you, I mean, just straight up comparing to a Model Y, yeah. how do you feel, like, is it is it comparable? Like, and I know that you're in the GT, but... Yeah. They're, they're very different cars. Um, I... I I think this speaks, as much as it speaks to the fact the Model Y is a really good price, I think it also speaks to the fact that the EV market's evolving really quickly in Australia. Um, there's a lot more competition. Demand has ramped up really quickly, but it can't keep ramping at that rate forever. And it wouldn't surprise me if Ford just overestimated what it thought people would pay in the demand for the Mac-E. As for how the GT compares, well, it definitely feels halfway between a conventional Ford SUV and something like a Tesla. The interior, I think, is really nicely put together. It's got a really impressive big screen in the middle, so there's a bit of Tesla about it, but if you're hopping out of an Escape or a Ranger, it's also not going to make you feel uncomfortable. The drive of the GT, it hasn't blown me away. It's quite rough. It's very firm, yeah. I should say. It's very firm. The, the ride is really tight, um, as you guys um, have no doubt mentioned in your video. <laughs> Um, but also just it doesn't feel as polished in the electric car stuff. The Model Y regen is so smooth and so well thought out. Uh, the Mackie is a little bit jerkier. Just little things like that that mean that I think the badge cred definitely gives it some sort of justification to being more expensive, but 
I wouldn't say it's a significantly better electric car. I'd actually say it's probably the electric car stuff slightly worse than the Tesla. Well, I think given that Ford could knock seven grand off the price like that, does that, I think that goes to show there's probably a bit of spare money lying in these EVs. Is this a trend that you think we'll see across the EV market going forward? I actually don't know that there is a lot of spare money in EVs because if you think about something like a Ranger, the development of that car has taken place over a really long time. You know that's not an EV, right? I do. Okay, good. I'm Just getting there. Okay, good. Stick with me on this. <laughs> um, but they also know that the tech in the Ranger will carry that car through in some form or another for the next 10 years. The Mackie has had to be developed really quickly. Batteries are more expensive to develop. Motor tech is not something Ford's done a lot of. A lot of cash goes into setting up production for these cars as well and they're selling fewer of them than they are something like a Ranger. On a per unit basis, I would expect that there's actually not a huge amount of margin in that car relative to something like a Ranger or an Everest for Ford. I think though, if the Mustang Mach-E doesn't go well when the Puma Electric wants to come to Australia, Ford's gonna to struggle to get enough supply of it. And when down the track, more electric products become available. If they don't sell enough Mach-E's, well, it makes it really hard to say to head office, we need 2000 of these Pumas. So, I think maybe Ford's willing to take a haircut on the profit because it needs these electric cars to sell strongly and to establish itself in that market. And from there, once it actually is established, you can start then turning the dial on the profit. Mm. And I mean, you guys talk to, to buyers in the market quite a lot. Is there interest around the Mustang Mach-E? Have you, have you heard much from people that are looking? I think people are interested to have a look at it. Uh, I, don't know, I don't think there's been enough um, it's not like the new Mustang where they're diving in and putting in orders. They're just, yeah, they want to and, know and I guess with the, with the conventional Mustang sports car, people know what to expect because it's very much an evolution of a, a tried and tested formula, whereas with the Mach-E, it is very much a, a very new concept. And you, people here have not really been exposed. And, and, you know, you have to think of the traditional Ford buyer. You know, Everests and Rangers are really their bread and butter. You know, and, and you buyers... <laughs> XR8 yes, owners. Yes. Yeah, the, the, the Aussie battlers, if yeah, you will. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that, that's the kind of people from Ford that are, that are going to potentially be buying this car beyond the, the, the um, conquest people that are coming perhaps from a Tesla or another brand. So you have to, people will be very risk averse perhaps, or, you know, like Scott said, you need to have something that doesn't frighten you straight away when you get behind the wheel. And I think with the Mach-E, the, the whole reason they branded it that way was not to scare people off, but also it's a very different vehicle to anything else in their lineup. So they've got quite a challenge ahead, and I think they really need to get people to have a look at it and you know, become aware of it and, and appreciate the, the way it's styled or the way it's laid out so that they can sort of get used to that idea. This is a real Ford problem, right? They sell the Ranger and the V8 Mustang, and everything else in their range, there's not really a bad car there, but people just don't know they exist. Yeah. It seems like Ford traditionally has been able to sell, they used to be called the Falcon Company, they're now the Ranger Company, and they really struggle to get people into their other stuff. I hope the Mustang's not a case of that, and I hope they can actually communicate what it's all about, because, I mean, it is an interesting addition to the EV space, but also it doesn't bode well for the future if, as we do start to go more electric, Ford can't communicate to people why they should be sitting in these cars. It doesn't doesn't bode well for anything but the Ranger, really. Mm. And I'm curious, Aussies spoke with their wallets when they Holden switched from the VF2 to the ZB Commodore. They called, what was it, Vauxhall Insignia that they called the Commodore. Yeah. It was a great car, but nobody was interested because yeah. of the name. And do you, I'm curious, do you think that uh, Ford have sort of made the same mistake here? Like, are people going, that's not a Mustang and... All that sort of stuff? I think when they put their foot down, especially in a GT, they will, they'll be more open to the idea it's a Mustang because it is fast, it is powerful, and it does sort of 
squeeze your chest like the V8 in a Mustang does. It's definitely not a traditional Mustang, but people buy four and six cylinder Mustangs. In the States, the rental spec Mustang sells really well. Um, people aren't buying them just for the V8 engine. They're buying them for the looks and for what the name stands for and the cultural idea of having a Mustang. So I actually think if, if Ford can get bums on seats, there is enough Mustang about it to convince enough people that it's it's not just a window dressing exercise. And I think just to piggyback off that idea is that, you know, that Commodore example, it wasn't the Commodore anywhere else but here, mm. whereas the Mach-E is the Mach-E and it's a Mustang everywhere. Yeah. So it's more or less getting people used to the idea of an electric Mustang that's more of a crossover as well, as opposed to something that's completely, you know, uh, really well recognised in a very specific part of the world and then trying to, you know, coax those people into buying something completely different yeah. but slapping a badge on. It's, it's not a badge engineering exercise at all. So I think that's where the difference is as well. well remains to be seen. Um, yeah, well, I guess we'll, we'll look forward to seeing what early customer reviews are like mm -hmm. and, and how the sales go. Uh, I guess VFAX in February should probably give us a bit of an answer as we'll to how We've got a pretty going. good idea, yeah. Yeah, so we'll, we'll cover that. Um, now, guys, I'm curious. Summer is... Well, summer's not here in Melbourne, but it's I'm here in the rest of Australia. Curious as to where summer is as well. <laughs> Christmas is right around the corner. What is your ideal summer road trip? James, you go first. I think something really relaxing. I like going down to the peninsula and going to the beach, really. And one hour behind the wheel when you want to spend most of the day in one spot is about as far as I'm willing to go. <laughs> so I'm pretty happy with that. What about you, Scott? I think that I want a big car with lots of space in the boot for my golf clubs and to work my way around the good golf courses around Victoria because there's plenty of them. Right. Well, what we want to know is what your ideal uh, idea of the perfect summer road trip is. Uh, we've recently been doing some work with Ampol uh, on a, a YouTube channel for a couple of videos that are coming out shortly. Um, but they enjoy our podcast too and they said... You know, we'd like to give something back to the guys that listen and watch. So what we're doing is we're running a competition over the next couple of weeks in the lead up to Christmas where you write into us, tell us what your ideal road trip is and you could win $400 worth of free fuel. 400 bucks of fuel, that's... That's at least good. one tank in the XR8. That's XRA. one tank in the XR8, <laughs> yeah. but if you, own a, if you own a sensible car, that could be quite a bit of fuel. Absolutely. That could definitely get you to the peninsula. It could probably get you to most of the golf Some clubs of around them, the place. yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, look, it's very, very easy. We'll put a link in the description as well, but what we want you to do is send us an email, podcast at carexpert.com.au. Give us your name, your phone number, your email address, and tell us in 25 words or less where you would go if you had free $400 worth of free fuel. And this is all thanks to our friends at Ampol. So 25 words or less, tell us what your ideal road trip is and where you would go with $400 worth of free fuel. All right, uh, it's time. It's, it's uh, the end of an era. Well, it's not really the end of an era, but it's the start of a new era for Toyota. For sure. Uh, the Land Cruiser has gone four-cylinder. And Scott, you've been driving it. So yeah, tell we, us a little bit about it. Are we in black and white now? <laughs> yes. Can we make that happen? A bit <laughs> of sepia at the moment. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yes. yes, Neil Armstrong has just stepped out of the Lunar Lander module onto the moon. And yes. uh, yeah. The Berlin Wall's about to fall, etc., yep. etc. Um, yeah, there's a new 70 series Land Cruiser. This car has been around in some form for 39 years as of the start of November. Uh, but Toyota has made a pretty significant change. Since 2007 in Australia, it's had a V8 engine and a manual gearbox. It's now got a version of the 2.8-litre four-cylinder from the Hilux and a six-speed auto. Uh, that's kind of sacrilege for some people because they want their Land Cruiser 70 to be a really rugged throwback off-roader. But Toyota's justification is these cars are also, more than they are for Instagram, a tool for a job, be that maintaining a fence on a remote property in Broken Hill or working for a country fire authority during fire season in Australia. And ultimately, the four-cylinder does everything the V8 can do but is more accessible. So... That's kind of the test we put it through. We drove them side by side in a range of conditions to see whether this four-cylinder with 
less displacement. I was going to do the maths on that, but I couldn't make it happen <laughs> in my head. 1.7 litres less, four fewer cylinders, and one more gear, but no clutch pedal. Can do all the stuff the V8 can. So it's essentially the Hilux drivetrain in a Land Cruiser now, isn't it? More There's a couple of changes to it. The, the Land Cruiser setup's got uh, an extra sort of bit of cooling on it because they tow heavier loads for longer. It's also got some changes to the cooling system to lift it higher up so that if you are in long grass or you are you know, approaching a really steep face, some of the stuff in the Hilux that is sort of underneath the plastic shielding is up out of the way in the Land Cruiser so that it's got a little bit more clearance, a little bit more capability, I suppose, baked in. But yeah, fundamentally, it's a version of the 2.8 in the Hilux. It's got the same outputs and the same transmission. It's just been uprated slightly for life in the cruiser. So aside from the AliExpress headlights that they've put on it, what, what else have they actually changed aesthetically to the car? Yeah, so the headlights are one of the big changes. Um, they've also uh, tweaked the front end, so it's got an old school Toyota word mark across the front of it. Uh, there's some slightly different wheels, but it's still the Land Cruiser 17. It still looks the same. Um, and that's a big part of the appeal for the people who do actually buy them for aesthetic reasons rather than practical reasons. So this is, okay, it's eight grand cheaper for the, or around about $8,000 cheaper for the yeah. four cylinder. At the bottom end of the range, the four cylinder is cheaper, yeah. yeah. What's the wait time? Do we know that yet? So <laughs> if you're waiting for a V8, the current wait is sitting at 12 months, mm. but Toyota is working through at the moment. If you've got a V8 on order, they will send you a four cylinder much sooner. Once they've worked through all of the people on the waiting list for the V8s, they'll then start offering the four cylinders to general public. So if you don't have an order now, and I know you don't have your order in yet, James, no, um, you're not going to be able to get one for a little while, but we're expecting those weights to drop as the four cylinder does ramp up. Now, look, we know in the Hilux that the engine, it does the job fine. It's, it's quite good at towing. Yep. It's quite good at off-roading, but... I guess the Hilux is a much smaller and lighter vehicle than, than the 70 series traditionally is. The 70 series is all about cast iron and like forage exhausts and you know a big toolbox on the back. Yeah. Like, how does this tiny little engine actually stack up when it when you're like off-roading, low range, whatever, but like when you're actually yeah. driving it on a highway, how is it? Uh, it's funny, this is not the question you asked, but in the Hilux we criticize this engine for being really noisy and unrefined. In the Land Cruiser, you can't hear it over the wind noise from the vertical windscreen and the massive mirrors. Yes. So on the plus side, it is quiet and refined. Oh, it feels every bit as capable as the V8. Um, and I didn't expect to be saying that. But you put your foot down, we towed a 3.1 tonne trailer. You put your foot down in the V8, you've got to shift down a gear to get up hills, you've got to work it. All that stuff happens in the background in the four-cylinder. It's got more torque than the V8 does. It's down one kilowatt, I believe. Oh. That's why well, I'm going to well, buy one. Yeah. I'm out. Kill your order. <laughs> um, it's every bit as capable as the V8 based on our testing, but the big difference is the accessibility of it. The V8 has got a heavy clutch. It's got quite a deliberate shift. You've got to really be clear on what you're doing, and if you are spending a long day behind the wheel in rough terrain, it's kind of taxing because you are constantly thinking, you are constantly aware of the fact that the torque band is quite narrow, whereas the automatic just removes all of that from the equation. It just lets you essentially point and shoot. Uh, it doesn't feel any slower, any less capable towing, any worse off-road, but you get out of the car and all this extra free brain power has sort of been made available to you to focus on your line if you're off-roading or keeping your eyes up if you're driving in the outback uphill with a trailer on there because you're not worried about where the engine is, what it's doing and what you need to be doing. So, yeah, there are going to be people who miss the V8, who miss the, the experience of actually, you know, rowing their own gears and... I kind of prefer driving the 8 because it is such a cool old school experience. It's but so easy to drive oh, too. Absolutely. It's unreal. 
but it's not as easy to drive as the automatic. And I think that's where Toyota's going to win people over. It's just removing load from them. Mm, okay. Well, look, the V8 is still around mm. for now. <laughs> Thank God. Sort of, um, yeah. James, have, uh, we're, we're going to loop right back to the start of the podcast now. Have you just come out of the Ineos? How do you feel about this? I, and uh, Let's be honest. The 70 Series, by the time you kit it out, is probably costing the same as the Ineos anyway. Oh, 100%. I know so, way too many people and have heard so many stories about people spending twice the actual list price of a Land Cruiser on accessories, which yeah. blows my mind. Yeah. But your question... Oh, my, my, <laughs> my question is, like, how do you feel about this? Because this, I mean, the Ineos is old made new, mm. whereas the Land Cruiser is old, sort of slightly new, but still old. Mm. I mean, we're... If you were looking at them, where would you where would you land? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. And the way that Scott explained what they've actually done to the drivetrain and all the other things that they've done to actually make that fit for purpose, I think is why I would trust Toyota with something like this. Only Toyota would go to that length. And given the, the level of capability that its customers demand of this car, whether you're a poser or not, people still want that capability so they can brag about it, really. Um, I think that... You know, I think it's definitely... The fact that they're offering both is what's key here, I think, because we've seen other manufacturers that have tried to redo an old formula. You know, they take away manual transmissions, they take away the old engines or whatever. But what they've got now is two products that look the same but are distinctly different and will appeal to different people. And I think, you know, it's now been verified to some extent that the four-cylinder is just as able or capable as the V8 across most metrics. There may be some uh, scenarios where the V8 will probably be the better choice or whether some people just personally prefer how it drives or how it feels. Um, but I, And the fact that you can get one sooner means that there are so many people that drive these things in town. Why do you need the V8 for? <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of people that just don't You might come need... across a Prius and you just need to dump yeah, all your well, exhaust. You know, but I also think the V8 that we should start thinking as if that's going away. Toyota didn't say it's going away, but we've read reports from overseas saying it's going away. Well, they still manufacture the six-cylinder in South Africa, the, yeah. the 4.2 six-cylinder. So we're one of the few markets that actually get the V8. But it wouldn't surprise me if Toyota fulfills all the orders on the V8, and from there it's a changeover period where it can prove what the four-cylinder can do, and they say four-pot only now. Um, that, that, to me, seems like a logical path. It's going to be a sad day. Yeah, that, that will be the disappointing part if yeah. that, if and when that happens um, because there are so many people that have been buying this car for so long and you look at how crazy lineup there is for, for it right now. People are willing to wait that long for it. Even today in 2023 where we're just before we we're talking about electrification and yeah. you know, pure electric Mustangs and the big news about this is that they've put an auto <laughs> in this in yeah. this U, you know, like it, it's it's really a testament to the success of the product. And I think that, you know, for now, while they're offering those two things, I think that's a really great idea and a really great way to cater to, you know, bring in more people, satisfy the existing customer base. Um, but yeah, if, if that's a possibility in the future, that will be very interesting to see because that could see demand drop right off once, you know, if V8, if V8 dies, then, then what is the 70 series after that? I think I can see there's still going to be a massive market. I mean, mines uh, and fleet are going to lap up the four-cylinder for sure. Like that's the absolute winner, I think, there. But I, I can see farmers getting behind it too. Yeah. It's, it's going to be it's a fuel-saving. Yeah, it's exactly a lot less load and a lot yeah. less... It'll uh, be interesting to cost. see if they bring in that 48-volt system that they've confirmed for that engine in the Prado and the Hilux. I think that's a ways be, down the track. And that's so, a big story as well. Yeah. Like you electrify one of their most iconic old-school mm. cars. Like, I guess maybe they're writing the, the new chapters as we speak. Who knows? Maybe. Well, look, I'm happy to see the 70 Series sticking around for a bit as longer. I'm sure you guys are too. Um, but, Scott... Having driven it, yep. V8 
or four cylinder, what would you buy? Okay, I'm going to cheat here. Okay. If I was buying it as a toy, I'd buy the V8, mm -hmm. but most people don't buy these as toys, and for them, the four cylinder makes more sense. Okay. As a work tool, it's the one you should get. Okay, well, there you go. I guess it does make a lot of sense because if you're just driving from building site to building site every day, the, the manual V8 does seem a bit silly. Yeah. But I'd still buy a V8. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. All right, so that pretty much brings us to the end. Uh, don't forget, we're running the competition. We're going to announce the winner after our Christmas episode. So basically, you've got, what's the date today? The 11th. You've got until the, fifth, uh, the, the 22nd to get your answers in. And we're going to pick our, our favourite to win $400 worth of fuel, thanks to Ampol, which is... I'm jealous. I know you're jealous. I am, absolutely. I'm, I know you've I've been seeing you set up fake email addresses this morning, so I'm sure you're going to be writing it a few of them. <laughs> Schmottschmolly at notcarexpert.biz. Yes, Keep that, an eye out for that one. Yes, that's going straight to the spam filter, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, guys, any final thoughts before we wrap up for the week? I'm just looking forward to... We're getting a couple more of these out before Christmas, but seeing people out on Christmas road trips with the family, it's a really cool time of year, and it's a time where people use their cars to kind of live the dream and show off the freedom that comes with that, which yeah, well, is... The world's back to normal enough now yeah. that we can actually do it. So it'd be quite a good summer after that, I think. Not in Melbourne, because we don't have summer, but... Um, what about you, James? Any final thoughts? Rock on. Rock on. <laughs> Rock on. All right. Don't forget to email us, podcast at carexpert.com.au. 25 words or less. Where would you go with $400 worth of free fuel? We will see you next week. Thank you for watching.